The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from blasphemoustomes.com. Here's a Japanese sandman Sneaking on with a duo Just an old second hand man He'll buy your old days from you He will take every sorrow Of the day that is through And he'll bring you Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. So Paul, I understand you're still putting your home movies online. <laughs> yes, I am, Scott. Well, at the time of recording, the latest one you put up is the one on the game system, is that right? Yeah, that one was put up today. And you're recording, what, the uh, Sanity one at the moment? Yeah, I'm working on the Sanity um, rules one at the moment. There's not so much rules, but there's quite a bit to explain about how to apply them in the game. Hmm. Well, I mean, because we're recording this one, this episode, quite a bit in advance, I imagine there'll be a few out, because you're trying to get one out a week at the moment now, aren't you? I'm trying to for the quick start rules, yeah, just to kind of get that out there. I imagine that'll take, I don't know, maybe five or six episodes. Yeah, but by the time you get around to the uh, the full 7th edition rules, those should be a bit more substantial, I imagine. I'm hoping this will be a bit of a learning experience and, and sort of learn how to, to make the best of it and how often I want to put them out and how long I want to make them and so on. I'm keen to keep them shorter rather than longer, just because I think that I've seen some videos which, you know, they're 8 or 10 minutes to tell you something that you could sort of be told in a minute or so. Yeah. I'd rather have it fairly densely packed and then people to be able to go back and if they didn't quite get it first time they can go back and watch it again but if you have any feedback on whether you think these videos are too short too long uh or just right then yeah let us know another video i saw this week was the unboxing of the london box set john hodgson put up a video on the website um with a lovely copy of that yep i've linked to that from blasphemous tomes and yeah it looks absolutely lovely I must admit, I'm looking forward to my coffee to turn up. I haven't watched the video yet because well, I have a very antiquated laptop and videos don't play all that well on it. So, uh, Yes, yeah. it looks like a thing of beauty. Well, the box head, not your laptop. Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> my laptop is not a thing of beauty. It's very close to my heart. I mean, I've written all my things on it, but no, the poor I, thing has seen much better days. I hope your heart's in better condition than your laptop, Matt. Uh, well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got the results of our survey. Our yes. survey says... <coughs> Unsurprisingly, the main thing that's come out of this is that most of you like Call of Cthulhu. I'm shocked. <laughs> who would have thought? <laughs> there, were, there were a couple of deviants who didn't, though, Scott. Yeah, but, but, but we've, we've had them purged now. Have we? Yes. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. But oh, no, 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 you're the... very welcome. Even if you don't like <laughs> Call of Cthulhu, you're very welcome to our podcast. We know who you are. We'll convert you in time. No, we probably won't, actually, because I have a feeling who one of them might be. <laughs> the main thing that we've learned from this, though, uh, well, certainly as far as topics are concerned, we'll get on to the duration in a moment. But the main thing we've learned uh, in terms of topic is the fact that pure convention reports aren't that popular. So we'll scale those back, if not skip them completely from now on. 
Uh, we, we'll possibly make mention in you know the, the little informal chats that we have before the the main topic, you know whether we've been to any conventions or anything interesting that's happened. Yeah, I think if there's something that crops up from a convention that is interesting to talk about, but but not just create an episode that just basically uh, recounts what happened at a convention. The other one that scored very lowly was the interviews um, section. But I think maybe we worded that in such a way as to make it sound like it was kind of divorced from everything else. Well, we've done two different kinds of interviews, really. So we've done little inserts that have gone into episodes, so like our recent research episode. Yeah, I mean, we, that, we wasn't, had, yeah we, that wasn't really out by the time this survey went up, though. But we did no, do one with, um, well, yeah, with the Steve Ellis and, one, yeah. and Adam Crossingham, yes. Yes, if you've got an opinion on you know, whether or not you're happy with that kind of interview insert in the episode, then, you know, again, we'd like to hear from you. Uh, but otherwise, you know, we'll, we'll probably carry on at least doing a few of those, you know, maybe not that often. But I think the, the general opinion that we've got from this is that dedicated interview episodes, probably not so much. Mm-hmm. And the feedback on the show length was interesting, and it shows that really our listenership is as good at reaching consensus on topics as we are. Well, it's to be expected there'd be a broad uh, range of opinions. I mean, there's the ones that preferred either shorter is better or 30 to 45 minutes, which was the shortest time options uh, specified, pretty much balanced out with the ones that were an hour and a half to two hours or longer is better. So there are some that really like it really short, some that like it really long. And then there was kind of a, a curve in the middle that seemed to even out around about an hour. Yeah, it seems to skew it just over an hour, probably on average. So I think what we're going to try doing from this is, I mean, we've we've worked before pretty unsuccessfully to try to keep the show length to about 45 minutes. But based on this, we're going to worry a bit less about at least trying to keep down to that length, that, you know, keeping it to about an hour to just over an hour is probably fairly natural for us with a lot of the things we talk about. And if we go over a a little bit on that for bigger topics, things that require a bit more discussion, when we have a guest on the show, something like that, then, you know, we'll go a bit longer and, and not sweat it too much. Yeah, I think the other thing that came out of it was just to let the show run to a suitable length. So, you know, if we didn't have so much to say about something, I'm sure that day will come, uh, then that can run shorter. Whereas if we do have something we feel is interesting and it justifies a longer show, then we can stretch to it as we did with the 50th episode. We still have the feedback form up on the website. So if you haven't filled in the survey and you have an opinion you'd like to share with us, please do. Following on from our episode about research and our interview with Brett Kramer, I was looking through some old documents on the computer and I came across an interview with Sandy Peterson, which he wrote and featured, I think, in an old uh, convention program. One of the points he made sort of had a bearing on, on research and it interested me. He said when he sits down to run a game, the people often ask him, uh, is this a 1920s game or a modern day game? What's his response? Yes. <laughs> which do you want it to be? Huh. Yeah, so I like that. His his framework is such that you've kind of got a story and, you know, it could fit in. It doesn't really matter. The, 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 the trappings of it aren't really that important. It's the, the story isn't really uh, fixed to a particular time or a particular uh, place. Yeah, when I think about it, the couple of games I played with them at conventions, yeah, they were very, very loose in that respect. I think we went in with some assumptions about when they were set, but it was never actually stated. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think that, that might become established in the game, but he could, you know, he could take that same story and run it in the 1920s, or if people want modern, he could transpose it to modern day. Well, I think the requirements are perhaps slightly different in a case like that, where you're running a fairly loose, quite often improvisational game uh, at a convention and you know, drawing a lot of player feedback. And that does seem to be Sandy's style, uh, to you know, definitely compared to writing one for publication. Yeah, so if he was writing it for publication, you, I, I guess he would then present it you know, in, a, in a period and a setting. And again, if you're, I suppose, running a scenario as part of an ongoing campaign, then it's got to anchor into the time period you've established. Mm. And geographically, it's got to be related to where your characters have been, or at least you know, follow on logically on their travels. Just Matt's think, looking perplexed. No, not perplexed. Just sort of mulling a couple of things over him, uh, a couple of things over in my mind. Because I know I've um, one of the sidebars I've put into a scenario for publication is that this this game, this scenario can be run in any time period. That the only, these are the key things you've got to consider, and it mainly just comes down to technology. Mm. And you're saying that you know, you've got uh, key swipes um, on door, key card swipes in, on, on doors instead of locks, for example. That you open with um, with a lock and the key uh, with lock and key, you might find a computer rather than a microfiche uh, bank in a library. That that sort of thing. Microfiche, not microfish. Fishy, you're, fishy. You're trying to get fish in again. <laughs> <laughs> or beep, beep. What did you mean? You might just find a tiny fish. That too. Babelfish, you know the one you put in your ear. Oh. Oh, mm. Or a kangaroo. <laughs> I'm not putting one of those anywhere near. <laughs> And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. The word of the week is nameless. Now, this may seem like a fairly mundane word to choose as our Lovecraftian word of the uh, week, but it is probably one of the most heavily used adjectives in Lovecraft's writings. Uh, he used this word an awful lot. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I did a, a quick count on uh, the, the document that I've got with his complete stories in it, it came up something like 150 times. I was going to say, I thought you had a very specific number in mind from conversation earlier. Yeah, I think <laughs> it was 147 to be precise. Mm -hmm. And you were saying that he used it numerous times in Mountains of Madness to describe... Nameless scents, as in yes. nameless smells. Exactly. That's a strange term. Yeah, that, that comes up about a half dozen times. I mean, I, I can only imagine that it applies to Shoggoth Spore. Or student digs. But by the very process of going through that, we've just named them. Uh. Haven't we? Yes, we have. And that does actually bring up uh, a fairly interesting thing about Lovecraft's use of nameless, which is he is one of these adjectives that, you know, like Eldritch, uh, that he seems to throw in from time to time in a, shall we say, somewhat less than literal capacity. Well, and also indescribable. I think indescribable and nameless both kind of go together in my mind, which both of which he used a lot. Um, yes. And also have led to a certain degree of parody. Mm. Um, thinking of that uh, Scottish TV sketch of there's yes. an indescribable nameless horror in my basement. Well, I'm sure our listeners will know perfectly well what nameless means. It does actually have a couple of other alternative uses. Unsurprisingly, the one that most people will be aware of as an adjective, 
having no name or no known name. But there is an archaic meaning, uh, specifically of a child, illegitimate. Yeah, that one's quite interesting. I'm not sure whether Lovecraft ever used it in that context. But it's, it's one that makes perfect sense from the context, but I'm not entirely sure I've ever seen it used that way. The other definition, of course, is the one that Lovecraft himself tended to use more often, which is not easy to describe or indefinable. And really, you know, if you go through Lovecraft's use of it, this covers, I'd say, at least 90% of his uses of, of Nameless. From the dream quest of unknown Kadath, there, too, were witnessed the nameless pastimes of the toad-like resident garrison. Such pastimes as give rise to the night howlings which men fear. Also from the Shadow of Runesmith. They were the blasphemous fish frogs of the nameless design, living and horrible. And as I saw them, I knew also of what that humped, tiara priest in the black church basement had so fearsomely reminded me. And from the case of Charles Dexter Ward, there were nameless horrors abroad, and no matter how little one might be able to get at them, one ought to stand prepared for any sort of action at any time. Because nameless isn't perhaps the easiest adjective to throw in lightly into conversation, we're going to cheat, and for an example, we're going to use it as a segue to our main topic for tonight. Moving on to our main topic, messing with the mythos. Since we've written a book entitled Nameless Horrors, should we discuss why we chose that title and how that title reflects upon the contents of the book? Yes, the, the choice of title is not accidental. This is a collection of Call of Cthulhu scenarios that we co-authored between the three of us that is all about nameless horrors. They're about those, those entities or things in the mythos that have no names. All of the things in here are things that you've never seen in any other Call of Cthulhu scenario. And in most cases, even in the scenario themselves, they don't have names. These are unidentifiable, alien, strange things that will have no comfortable familiarity for your players. There were two criteria that I remember you putting forward when we proposed the book. The first one was that the uh, the baddie in it wasn't one of the you know things that had been previously published or you know was it was a new uh, adversary and the second one was that it wasn't easily resolved through combat i mean there may it's not that there won't be any combat in the scenarios but the the, the solution wasn't just you know we burn the house down or we you know get some big guns and go and shoot it although yes. obviously that can work too so don't worry folks i'm not saying that all call of cthulhu scenarios are like this but there did seem to be a certain trope amongst a lot of the earlier scenarios that it was, you know, you get, uh, you know, a hook, probably a letter from a, you know, a relative who's died or something like that, or you're going along, you know, to, to hear the bequest. You, you, you hear a bit of information, you get, you know, start unravelling this series of clues, you do a lot of investigation, and then at the end of it you load up on shotguns and dynamite and go off and kill the big bad evil. Well, unless your adversary is uh, non-corporeal, you know, unless they can't be hurt by physical means, then that is usually a, a recourse to a, to a solution, isn't it? Yes, but I, I, I figured it would be slightly more unnerving, or at least get back more to that sense of horror, if there was this feeling that, you know, whatever you were up against 
wasn't necessarily something you could fight. Or at least it wasn't as simple as yeah. charging in all guns blazing. It yes. was more yeah. trying, to, trying to create a more complex situation. Yes, when I say, you know, you couldn't fight it, I mean, yeah, you can't just pull out a gun and shoot it, or at least, you know, that, that will only get you so far. Mm-hmm. Usually bring you one step further to dying as you realise it now has your attention. And this also addressed one of the issues that had come up in previous games, that as a keeper, you'd start delivering the, the scenario, and, you know, one of the players would suddenly go, oh, it's deep ones! And yeah. you'd be like, yeah, it is, but, you know, shut up. <laughs> there, there, there was one very very specific moment i remember in a game that i was playing in that actually gave me the idea to pitch this to the two of you which is a game that i think all three of us actually played in so uh, i haven't completed it <laughs> but it was a game we were playing at the club with our friend matt not and it was a scenario he, he hadn't written it it was a published scenario i, I won't give too many details of it in case you know, spoiler it's, it's a spoiler but um there, there were a number of fairly subtle clues throughout it yeah, I, I I won't tell you the scenario or whatever, but I will mention what the monster is. I mean, there, there were clues like, you know, we saw drawings and so on that had lots of wavy lines on them. Uh, people were feeling he- headachy and run down. And at some point, there was an implication that we'd lost a bit of time. And at some point, you know, during the game, you know, something clicked with me and I just wrote down on a bit of paper and passed it over to Matt and said, it's a loigal. For me, as a player, from the moment, yeah, I, I went from... You know, all these weird bits of phenomena going on in the game to suddenly thinking, oh, I know what this is. I know its name. You know, I I know its stats. Yes, all right, it's still something phenomenally dangerous. If we encounter it or engage with it, we're probably all dead. But it was still, oh, it's a loigor, right? And, and, you know, 90% of the horror and uncertainty of the game went out of it for me at that point. See, I came at that from the opposite end of the spectrum because that was the first time I'd encountered one at the game table. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. It would never occur to me. Okay, not uh, from what you just said. All right. I don't know why it clicks with me like that. I, I think I probably reread Return of the Loigor sometime around then. But whatever it was, yeah. I, as I said, at that stage, it occurred to me that you know, it, for for someone like me who's you know run a lot of Call of Cthulhu over the years, uh, who you know, knows the you know the written work fairly well that if you're using creatures or gods or entities from the canon, then it's, it's relatively difficult to surprise me. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's relatively difficult. And that, you know, it's that sense of disappointment of, I know what this is now. So it, it's, it can still work very well when you're blindsided, because I, I still take my hat off to you when you run a particular, again, not without naming it and giving it away, um, when you ran a particular scenario... And I did not get any of the hints that it was the Mego. And just to finally, suddenly when it was the last scene of you describing the buzzing of wings and these things flying towards you, like, ah, shit. (laughs) And finally went, oh, so that's what it's all been. It suddenly all made sense. Yeah, I mean, this takes me back to the early days of playing D&D as a kid. And the first time, I remember the first time, you know, we were attacked by an orc or something. It was just this monstrous humanoid creature running at us out of a door. And we were like, what the hell? And, you know, desperately trying to fight it off. And it was very exciting. But then after you played D&D a while, there's some orcs. Oh, okay, I know what orcs are. Okay, well, you know, I know what our chances are. It's a very quantifiable thing. And it takes some of the excitement out of it. Not necessarily horror, just the excitement, I think. So it takes the intrigue and out of it, and you, you kind of know what you're dealing with, and you can start to, like you said, you know what the stats are. 
That would be my argument for having something nameless in that it keeps the intrigue and excitement there. And now let's have a think about how to avoid common tropes. You can certainly mitigate some of these problems uh, just as a keeper through, I mean, very obvious things like never actually use the name of the creature that you're, you're describing, but be very vague with the descriptions of it, perhaps even sort of change around uh, some of the aspects of it. So, you know, if you're describing a ghoul, for example, you know, obviously as soon as you, you mention, you know, it's canine snout and stuff like that, then, and mould-encrusted skin, then any Call of Cthulhu player who's encountered a ghoul before or, or read the Call of Cthulhu rules will identify it. But if you describe it, in, you know, in other circumstances, so, you know, say if you're in some sewers somewhere and it's just this vague shape moving under the water and you describe it as this kind of pale, vaguely humanoid thing, mm-hmm. uh, Certainly at that stage it's going to wrong foot people or confuse them and, and you know, it's going to be that much scarier. And I've, I think I've, I can't remember whether it was actually yourself, Paul, that had used a descriptor when we were playing um, one of the uh, major campaigns that features ghouls quite heavily. Um, I didn't really get the impression that they were canine in appearance but more uh, more humanoid. And so again, you just you just twist slightly the aesthetics, and again, it can have a much different impact. Yeah, I think the other thing you can do is play around with the stats as well. So I mean, everybody knows well. Call of Cthulhu players know what to expect from a deep one. In the story, in the Shadow of Innsmouth, you know, there's no stats for deep ones. They are pretty damn tough things. We'll just scale them up a bit. You know, suddenly if the players are expecting them to be one level of uh, adversary, and suddenly there's something quite different in your particular game you know, undermines those expectations or give them some different abilities. Or even just fundamentally change what they are. There's one piece of work that I wrote uh, a little while ago where I played around with the idea of what a Deep One hybrid was. Uh, because, I mean, obviously the Shadow of Rinsmith talks about Deep Ones interbreeding with humans and, and producing these hybrids. I had some fun having them interbreeding with animals and producing, you know, creatures that mm. were, you know, sort of half animal, half Deep One. And, yeah, they, they, they were kind of a bit weird. Some great artwork went alongside it, I believe. <laughs> yes. Mm. Oh, yes. The other main criterion that we had for these scenarios was that each one was a self-contained unit with pre-generated characters that fitted into the situation that had something at stake in it. That, you know, these these weren't necessarily standard Call of Cthulhu investigators. This was much more sort of the feeling of characters in a horror film. One of the things I like about self-contained games like this is certainly if you're the keeper, if it's not something that's sliding into an ongoing campaign, it becomes easier to take the gloves off as the keeper. And you're not worried about whether or not the characters survive, you're not worried about damaging them too much psychologically or destroying them or screwing Mm -hmm. them up for ongoing play. That, again, you you can play towards a really horrifying endgame without worrying about breaking ongoing play. But I think the strength of it being a self-contained game and not part of an ongoing game is that you don't know what the expectations are so it's like putting on a film they can undermine your expectations you can start off thinking it's one thing but it's actually something quite different and with a one-off or a you know a short game you can do that the expectations you built up in your previous game boards wiped totally clean 
So if you want to have it, you know, such that traditional vampires and werewolves are a part of this game, well, they might be. Whereas in a regular Call of Cthulhu campaign, maybe you've established that's not. Yeah, you don't have to worry about a wider context. And Fred, that that's, is, is actually quite liberating as a, as a writer and a keeper to do that, that you don't have to worry about wider constraints and the dreaded C-word canon. Yeah, I think because all of us have run a lot of games at conventions, we're used to structuring games like this, and it's sort of become second nature to approach games like this, that you know, we, we present these, these self-contained units uh, to groups of players at conventions. This is very much sort of the structure that we used for this book. But I think you know, it's not something that should be limited to convention play. I think it's quite a powerful thing to do. Personally, I mean, for me, this, you know, this is probably heresy. I much prefer Call of Cthulhu for one-shots than, you know, than for campaigns. There are some fantastic campaigns for Call of Cthulhu, but I think quite often it, it dilutes the horror a bit in a way that you, you don't get with that short, sharp shock of a one-shot. You mentioned the place of canon, or the lack of it, in, in our games. I hear it's something that Scott uses to shoot a pedants, but yeah, carry on. <laughs> but uh, a number of myth authors have taken up you know, the Lovecraftian um, kind of stories, but they take it and reinvent it in their own way. Yes, uh, one of the main examples I can think of from the wider non-Lovecraftian uh, mythos writing that I've read, and for my sins I've read some of it anyway, um, Brian Lumley and his depiction of Azathoth. Um, admittedly, Azathoth isn't one that's explicitly defined in Lovecraft's work. If, if anything, it's Lovecraft's take on Mano Yad Suche, or however you pronounce it, from Lord Dunsany, from the gods of Bagana, that it's a terrible creator god that sits at the centre of the universe and is pulsated by drums, and um, lest it wake up, then it will devour the universe. Yeah, and these kind of lesser beings playing pipes and singing around it and so on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I think in Lovecraft it's it's less that he ought to wake up and devour the universe and more that it's this sort of idiot creator, this mm -hmm. sort of accident at the centre of creation that is you know, uncaring. It fits into this sort of bleak, nihilistic... Uh, well, it's mindless, yeah. he describes it as. Yes. <laughs> but yet yeah, has um, its servant in the Arthur and so on and so forth. Um, it's described very much as the demon sultan that sits on the throne of ultimate chaos, so on and so forth. Lumley describes it as the Big Bang. Um, it describes it as nuclear chaos and takes away nuclear rather than meaning the centre of all things, just means, oh, it's that thing where you split the atom and you get lots of radiation and a big, and a big boom. And that kind of great, that grates on me a little bit. I can see where he's ta he's taken the one word, latched onto that, and then gone off on a completely tangential So is it just, the, is it just the Big Bang, the original one, or is it any kind of nuclear explosion? Um, nuclear explosion is used to summon it, um, oh, okay. uh, or lots, large amounts of nuclear fission, or mm. um, lots of fissionable material, but ultimately is that process that is continually exploding at the centre of the universe. Mm. And but whether you like it or not, I mean, that's, that's a, a reinvention of um, Azathoth, it's taking it and making it his own, and as, as one might in a scenario. Yeah, it's a bit reductive, but it's an interesting take. Yes. An example that springs to mind for me is Michael Shea's story, Fat Face. Uh, I mean, it's donkey's years since I've read this, so you know, even if I wanted to go into details, I couldn't. But it's fundamentally a very different take on what a Shoggoth is. And if you take a look in the Call of Cthulhu rules, along with Shoggoth, there's an entry for Shoggoth Lord, 
which is this sort of humanoid, you know, sort of slightly more sentient, shape-shifting version of, you know, uh, of a Shoggoth that can take human guys. That is lifted wholesale out of Fat Face. Mm. So I think that comes, at least from the Cthulhu rulebook in one sense. There is an old scenario involving a character called Mr. Shiny. Yeah. I think that's where probably that scenario used the inspiration from. Yeah, but, the, but that in turn, the inspiration yeah, for that's that comes from Fat Face, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this was a very different take on what a Shoggoth was, because you know, they, admittedly, you know, outside of at the Mountains of Madness, Lovecraft was fairly loose with the definition of what a Shoggoth was. But in that particular story, you know, it's this giant, monstrous thing that you know about the size of a subway car that you know rolls around, sprouts orifices and eyes and tentacles and so on, and flattens everything in its path. You know, taking that and making it into you know something a bit more subtle, this you know sort of shape shifting predator that can take on the guise of the things that it's going to feed on, is really quite different. That's an interesting word that you use there. The things it feeds on. Because I'm very much thinking the thing. Yes, you know, in turn, a game was was very much inspired by the Mountains of Madness and yes. could be taken as another take on the Shoggoth. <laughs> So are we getting away from our remit of talking about nameless things here? Because we're talking about reinventing existing things. Well, I think it's all part and parcel of the same thing because you know we're talking about reinventing the mythos, about making it your own. And sometimes, yes, that does involve making stuff up wholesale. And sometimes that involves using things in an unexpected way. And well, I, I think you know, the point that I'd really want to make in all this is that... You know, the Call of Cthulhu rulebook and the supplements and so on give you a very, very good foundation, um, give you lots of useful tools and creatures and locations and items that you can use. But this is not gospel. You know, you know it wasn't even in Lovecraft's own work. I mean, Lovecraft contradicted himself the whole time. If you ever find yourself sitting down and sort of thinking, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd quite fancy doing this particular take on things, but that's not how deep ones work. Well, yes, that's how your deep ones work. Mm. You know, reinvent stuff, change them, change the names of things, change the depictions, change, you know, as you were saying earlier, Paul, what they can do. Yeah, I mean, maybe take a couple of uh, monsters, take some traits from different ones and, and mix them up. You don't have to explain to the players at the end exactly what that monster was. Yeah, this whole, I mean, the whole point of this, you know, of the mythos is that it's alien, it's ineffable. That, you know, if the players are, you know, think that you're doing it wrong, that means you're probably doing it right. Wow. So your goal is to actively piss off Call of Cthulhu purists. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. <laughs> We've talked about making up new creatures. What makes a new creature Lovecraftian? How do we create one that's going to fit into the game rather than it be something out of Dungeons & Dragons, say? For, sh for fans of the show QI... This would be the point. If someone says tentacles, we should have the walls light up in black <laughs> with bright white and it just says, TENTACLES! <laughs> yeah, for me, there are a few things that really sum up Lovecraftian creatures. There's the fact that, really, at their heart, they're not supernatural. They're alien creatures. They, they operate in strange ways. The ways of interacting with them may sort of resemble occult means and may you, you may be able to explain them in occult terms. But these are not you know, ghosts or creatures out of gothic horror or whatever. These are 
these are entities. These are entities from beyond. These are entities from you know, other realms, from other planets. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure saying to me that they're not supernatural is particularly helpful because they seem to defy the laws of nature as we understand them. In that way, they're supernatural to me. What I would see as they're not traditional horrors. They're not... They don't, they don't fit in, you know, if we have a ghost story, I kind of know what to expect with a ghost story. You might take it in a different direction. Um, but, you know, kind of know what to expect. Equally with vampires. You know, that, another thing, you know, I mean, if you take vampires, people have reinvented vampires again and again, and often to, to really effectively. Subverting that is, is sometimes really interesting. And, and zombies as well. But it's none of those kind of traditional things, I think. Yeah, you pretty much stole the point I was going to make a couple of seconds before I could open my mouth. Um, Did you want to say Twilight, Matt? Is that what you wanted to say? <laughs> Fuck off. Twilight smash. We'll just have a brief period here <laughs> while Matt calms down. <laughs> Vampires do not fucking sparkle! Mm. Um, the the thing know, I was going to say... <laughs> the thing I was going to say was that Lovecraftian entities, or what makes an Enter the Lovecraft, in my opinion, is that it flies in the face of the laws of physics. It um, flies in the face of all conventional um, ways that some the work the world should work. Like Hound of Tindalos, you don't expect a hound to jump out of a right angle. Um, you don't expect, um, say, a dimensional shambler to just step through um, from one time into another, or a Yithian to possess you from um, across uh, boundless years. And be divided but by time. Are these such different things? I mean, you could expect. I mean, taking traditional things, I can expect somebody to be possessed by a demon. I can expect a ghost to walk through the wall. But a demon is something that has a phys- um, at least maybe you could interpret as being this ethereal thing that is still rooted in the here and now. I wouldn't expect to, um, my body to be, uh, at least my consciousness, to be projected millions of years back in the past or projected into the future. And also, one of the things that makes the Yithians very different there is the fact that. Their goal isn't malevolent in the way that a demonic possession would be, that they're actually scientists in search of knowledge, but it's their whole approach and the whole alienness uh, that makes this intrusion all the more disturbing. Yeah, they're not doing it for what I term, because I don't particularly like demonic possession as a tool in a game. I think that, oh, the demon turns up with its moustache, does shits and giggles in the name of going, ha-ha, I'm evil, and then goes away again to be and to be defeated at a later point. As Scott says, the Ithian is a very coldly logical, scientific purpose. And it isn't evil or bad or good, it's just it's doing it because it wants to learn. And again, that's something that's quite common about a lot of Lovecraftian... Uh, entities and creatures and so on, which is the fact they're intelligent. Yeah, the Migo, for example. Yeah, or Elder Things, or yeah. Serpent People, or, well, not the Serpent People are particularly Lovecraftian, or Deep Ones, Yithians, as we've talked about. I mean, these are cold analytical intelligences, or at least, you know, equivalent to human intelligence. They have uh, science and technology that blends with what we'd consider to be a cult in the way that it manipulates the forces of time and space. But when you were talking about cold calculating alien intelligence, I was thinking War of the Worlds. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think the Martians in there, in a lot of ways, are you know, templates for some Lovecraftian entities. Even right down to the way they look. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Mm. I mean, there's two things I think I would that, that set apart, not necessarily a Lovecraftian game for me, but that set apart a Call of Cthulhu game for me, because I would, I would differentiate that, those two terms. It's a game without human gods. When I say human gods, I mean like 
chiefly for me the Christian God. In so many horror uh, tropes we see you know, priests with crosses actually having an effect, holy water actually having an effect. So all these um, things from our Christian church actually manifesting and working. Yeah, well, very specifically, you know, you're talking about, and you can frame it in all sorts of other cultures, yeah. but the battle between good and evil. Yes. And that has no place no. in the mythos. You know, good and evil are concepts that do not apply, no matter what August fucking Dirth may have tried to tell you. <laughs> I was going to wonder when you were going to get to that. You'll never get over that. <laughs> and the other, and the second one, so that'd be the first one, the good versus evil thing is a no-no. And, and the second one would be that human beings don't have any inherent power beyond just basic physicality. They don't have any spiritual afterlife. They're not at the top of some pyramid of creation. Uh, as they are in something, you know, if we can kind of realise our true being, we can be something else. No, we can't. We're just flesh and blood yeah. mortals. Very free, fragile ones as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the only exception to that is the fact that, you know, you do have uh, this undercurrent of esotericism and, and occultism in Lovecraft, you know, in Lovecraftian books, for example, uh, in the magic and so on, that gives you some degree, perhaps not that's even not inherent control. in the humanity. I think that's, no. that's a tool that we can learn to use in the same way we can learn to drive a car. I think, I would say. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah no, I, I agree with you. They are rules of reality. Just, you've got to find the rule book, essentially. I yeah. mean, I'm comparing it to something like cult or, or unknown armies, where you can kind of climb up tiers into godhood yes. kind of thing. That that scope isn't there for humans in Call of Cthulhu, I don't think. No. I mean, perhaps you, if you can sort of side with some eldritch being... Um, well, well, you can do so by becoming something other than human. You do so by yes. embracing the mythos, by bringing it into you. And you can perhaps transcend humanity, but you do so at the expense of no longer being anything remotely human. Mm. Yeah, humanity itself can only go so far because its constraints, even as maybe it was part of the older thing's design, maybe it wasn't, but they can't inherently take the forces that, say, gods wield or some of the other more powerful mythos races can wield because simply they're too, fra they're too fragile both in mind and body. But all this also points at another aspect of the mythos, well, particularly the, the sort of magic and artefact side of things, that really appeals to me, which is I mean, something I've mentioned on earlier episodes, which is the whole cargo cult aspect of the mythos. The fact that you, you have these humans who have learnt little bits of it, you know, how to interact with some entities, how to cast some spells, how to you know, create or use some artefacts. These are all things that really fundamentally are far beyond the understanding of the people who are trying to wield them. And it's, you know, it's children playing with fireworks. You know, every now and then they'll get some pretty lights and you know, have, you know, get what they want. But quite often they'll blow their hands off or blind themselves. It's nice to know that humanity aren't the only creatures out there that have done that in the mythos. Um, the insects from Shigai in uh, Ramsey Campbell's work have that similar aspect of messing up and landing on Earth, not necessarily knowing how they got there and why, the, uh, why they failed, why their ship doesn't move and so forth. So it's not just um, a lack of on an ignorant trait that is restricted just to humanity. Yes, it is a cold, horrible, complex, unforgiving universe out there and we can all be fucked over by it. That was thought for the day. Yeah. <laughs> Happy, cheery mantra to live your life by. <laughs> I think as well that there are certain expectations of 
the kind of tone you expect to see in a, a Call of Cthulhu scenario, or at least you know, certain standard tropes that came up in terms of you know, them being slow burn investigative things, very much about atmosphere and, and the build up to revelation. Yeah, I think as I mean, if one were to kind of just draw up a quick stereotype, it'd be a 1920s situation where everything's okay, and then you get some hint that something isn't. You go to the library, do some research, and like you say, it's a slow burn. But you can still maintain a Lovecraftian essence to the scenario and shake up the tone of that considerably. I think it's possible, you know, for example, to do a very blackly comic Lovecraftian game. And I think, you know, a lot actually end up turning out that way as, as players do more and more kind of elaborate and bizarre things in pursuit of their goals. I think you can do, you know, really quite violent, splatter-filled ones. You can do ones with none of that sense of subtle restraint. They're still, I think, essentially Lovecraftian. I mean, yeah, even Lovecraft himself. It may not be his finest work or one of his favourites, but Herbert West Reanimator is certainly blood-filled and really quite funny in places, uh, but it's still Lovecraftian. I did, I did have visions of Stuart Gordon uh, going through in my head when you were saying about black comedy and so on. Paul, you were just saying that there's a sort of certain template that's expected, at least as some of the earlier Call of Cthulhu scenarios. Maybe not expected, but, you know, if we're to draw up a standard one, almost a, a pastiche of them, it would it would follow those kind of lines. Yeah, th- those cliches exist for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a well-trodden path. But I think when you're creating your own scenario, you can just get an idea for a horror story and then just mesh it into a, a Call of Cthulhu story. I mean, that's what I tend to do. And sometimes I've created a, a scenario and then I've thought, well, there aren't really any Lovecraftian uh, elements in here and I just stick a few in. Well, you create lots and lots of weirdness going on, and then you know, think, oh, yeah, Yogg-Sothoth did it. Yeah. <laughs> Not that anyone's done that at all that we can think of. <laughs> I think that's one of the ways to, to mess with the mythos, is not to start with the mythos. It's just to start with some kind of, maybe taking inspiration from a film or story that you've read, and you know, running from there and just developing it with your own ideas. And then kind of think, okay, well, how does the mythos you know, subtly... Uh, mess with this or, or mix in with this and you've gone quite a long way from the, the source material i think if you go to the book and start thinking okay uh let's do a scenario about flick 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 deep ones well you can start that way but you're probably it's probably going to be apparent in your scenario that it's about deep ones yeah, I would have thought so. But, you know, it, but personally, I mean, I, I get a lot of inspiration from I mean, all sorts of random places. But, you know, for example, like reading old books of fairy tales and legends and stuff like that. And, you know, recently reading uh, books on pop psychology and stuff like that. Then, so you're not starting from the Lovecraftian, no. that's my point. You're starting yeah. with something very different. And then you're fitting it into a Call of Cthulhu game. And by doing that, you know, you're meshing the two. You're making a kind of mashup of the two, um, and it feels like a Call of Cthulhu game, but it feels like a different version of it. Exactly. Yeah, I have a very similar reason. That's why my uh, Myths and Legends library at home is expanding ever more. Just uh, news reports. Like um, I may have mentioned this on a previous show, um, the Unknown Army's mailing list at one point, and to some extent, lesser degree now that the Delta Green mailing list is great for throwing up random, weird shit news articles that you think the truth is really stranger than fiction. Something just sets the imagination on fire, thinking, that's just plain bloody weird. Mm. And oh. then trying to explain it in a game. 
Well, yes. I mean, one that's just sprung to mind, which you know, it's it's not actually a Call of Cthulhu example. It's something that I ended up writing up as a, a little seed for unknown armies. Was when I went on a first aid course many years ago, mm. and uh, we were practicing CPR with the Rasasian doll, and the trainer you know shared the story with us of uh, the origins of the doll with the fact that the face on it was based on this death mask of this woman whose body was pulled out of the scene, this unidentified woman. And that you know, someone at the time had created this death mask because they thought that she had a really interesting face. And then you know, that, that, that became used as the template for this, this doll that people had spent you know, years sort of trying to bring to life ever since then. Am I right in thinking it was a 16-year-old girl? Yeah, it was something like that, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, around 100 years ago. Mm. It just struck me that if that's not the basis for some weird fucking occult ritual, what is? Mm. Yeah, so people have symbolically been trying to bring this dead girl back to life you know, for 50, 60 years. Even if she doesn't have arms and legs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you got away without having a head, what's the problem? Oh, I, I did a similar thing with, um, it came, came out on the Delta Green list. Um, there was an article that was originally published in the Telegraph that stated that the British Library lost over twenty—I think it was over twenty thousand books—and the problem is they weren't lost; they were still somewhere in the library. They hadn't been stolen, rather they hadn't been stolen. That well, if they haven't gone from the library, where are they? Hold on, how did they know they hadn't gone if they couldn't find them? Because they um, they they hadn't been checked out. But they. Um, I mean, but if you were stealing them, you wouldn't check them out. <laughs> no, 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 I mean they, they hadn't they hadn't been registered as having been left the building. But, right. Um, so they knew they were somewhere still left in there. Just they hadn't been put back in the right place. Right. They were finding lots of books that should um, in the wrong place when they go went to look for other books, and then they did a whole catalogue through. And yeah, it's, it's up on the Telegraph website somewhere. But yeah, it's uh, just a tremendous amount of books that have been moved around. And I thought, okay, it's got to be done for a purpose. Why is it being done? And that led to a whole scenario from there. Hmm. I think another interesting way that you can get away from sort of the standard tropes of Call of Cthulhu scenarios is by having very driven characters at the core, the core of them. In a lot of cases, investigators are surprisingly passive characters, which I suppose sort of fits in with a lot of the standard Lovecraftian protagonists, that they're, you know, they're initially at least to observe, to piece the, put the pieces together and then to do something about it. But they're, they're largely responding to events and, and uncovering things. But you've got some Lovecraftian uh, protagonists who are pretty much the polar opposite of that. And I mean, you know, going back to one I mentioned earlier, Herbert West uh, or Crawford Tillinghast, you know, I mean, these are people who are you know going out of their way to actively try to do something. And in a standard Call of Cthulhu game, that might you know those might be NPCs. But what happens if you've got a game where those are the player characters? It certainly has a lot more impetus, definitely, rather than just having the haberdasher that happens to stumble across something nasty happening in the basement next door, um, to actually have someone who's integrated with the plot on a more fundamental level, um, also a more interesting level, rather than just being, oh, there happened to be a bystander when something interesting happens, they actually have a more, I'll say personal works best, I find in those instances where they have a real personal tie to things. It just has a lot more spark, a lot more fire, a lot more investment in it as well. Yeah, they are actively engaged with the mythos. Hmm. We've talked quite a lot about what led to Nameless Horrors and what inspired us to write stuff like that, but we haven't really talked at all about the book itself.
And finally, let's have a quick look at what's actually in Nameless Horrors. Rather than just read out the blurbs from the back of the book, what we thought we'd do is try to explain as if you were sitting down at the table with us, give you a little introduction to what you'd expect if you were playing this game. And we start off with Matt's An Amaranthine Desire. The group premise for the characters in An Amaranthine Desire is that you're all members of a smuggling ring. There are various people that um, portray different roles within that. You've got like the hired muscle, you've got a, a character who's basically looking for adventure, you've got someone who has a very fundamental hate of the English who's doing this despite them. Everyone has a very personal drive that is taking them into this. Um, they're unloading um, cargo off the east coast of England, off the real port of Dunwich. Uh, not Lovecraft's one, so the the one on the East Ang and the one on the East Anglian coast that has been slowly sliding into the sea for the best part of time immemorial. Really, there's a storm brewing. You're ta um, you're taking in barrels ashore, and that's when the action starts. Moving on to one of yours, Paul. Why don't you give us the introduction to "And Some Fell on Stony Ground." This scenario is set in small-town America of the 1920s, although you could change it up to any other period, any other time, as we were discussing earlier. The town is named Stowell, and it's the kind of town that we might see in the Twilight Zone, or perhaps Bedford Falls in It's a Wonderful Life. As players, you can decide how you know each other. You, you know, one of you maybe works in the local diner, another one works in the hardware store, maybe another one's a school teacher. You're all regular folks from the town. You're each invested in the town in some ways, so as players, you should think about how you know each other and why you're so keen on living in Stowell. But old things have been happening recently, and events have brought you together, and, and you're at house one morning, gathered together over a coffee, chatting over how things have been a little odd recently when something occurs. And we come around to Scott now for Bleak Prospect. It's 1932 and the Great Depression is getting grim. Your characters are all members of a shantytown, a Hooverville, on the outskirts of a town called Crawley in Massachusetts, about 30 miles from Arkham. You used to be someone. You, your characters, some of them, you know, one may be a doctor, one may be a lawyer, or at least that's what they were. But you've had a run of bad luck, and worse than that, you've had bad health. You and everyone else in the shantytown is suffering from some unknown illness. The doctor who has uh, ended up living in the camp along with you has been trying to treat this, but he's got no idea what's wrong. People are getting sicker and sicker. Worse than that, there are rumours going around the camp of strange things happening at night. Some people tell stories of men without faces who move in amongst you all as you sleep. It's now a cold October morning. The frost is beginning to bite for the first time this year, and things are about to get a lot worse. And we come back to Matt for A Message of Art. The title for this scenario comes from a quote from George Bernard Shaw that I believe sets the tone rather well to begin with. I believe in Michelangelo, Velasquez and Rembrandt, in the might of design, the mystery of colour and the redemption of all things by beauty everlasting, and the message of art that has made these hands blessed. Amen. Amen. It's the height of the Belle Epoque in Paris, the 1890s, and the closing night of the Salon de la Rose Croix. 
It's the height of the Belle Epoque, the 1890s in Paris, and you are the Parisian art elite that have come together on the closing night of the Salon de la Rose Croix, a pinnacle in the symbolist movement, um, a gathering unlike any other of artists from across Europe that had been brought together by the vision of one man, a real man um, by the name of Joseph Peladon. One would say magician, art critic, a very strange person that had the idea that was no secret that he wanted to use art as a method by which to awaken the European consciousness, a method to change the world, and that the, um, the people sat round the table here, our investigators, have come together to get a piece of the action. Um, they've come here for either personal gain, they've come with the intent of helping him achieve his, uh, achieve his desires, or maybe they've come for other ulterior methods. But in either case, the party's going to happen just down the road in about an hour. Um, one would turn up fashionably late to a party, but they wouldn't necessarily arrive early to a party. So they've gathered an absinthe house, they're starting to talk amongst each other, passing the time, waiting for the moment when the doors open. And then one of the artists who's been quite prominent within the salon walks in through the door, looking a little worse for wear. Moving back to you, Paul, tell us all about the Moonchild. The Moonchild is set in Milton Keynes, although it could be set anywhere near a university town. You as players were all at university some 20 odd years ago. And following university, you all lost touch with one another, as, as we do. But over the last few years, with the growth of social media, you've slowly got in touch with one another. Seem familiar? And one among you has decided to organise a, a get-together, a reunion of some kind. This is what brings you player characters together. And as the game begins, you are meeting up with another member of your old cohort, in a cafe. She's called you there sounding rather upset that she's not going to be able to make the reunion uh, and she's expressed a concern that one of your old university chums, David Barber, is making strange requests of her and that she's had a child by him. What you're saying then, Paul, is all your games begin with a hot drink. I was just going to say it was coffee in one and tea in another. <laughs> what can I say? It's nice. It's reassuring. Are you going to do a follow-up to these? It involves Coco. Ovaltine. And back to Scott for the sixth scenario in the collection, The Space Between. This scenario takes place in modern-day Los Angeles. The characters are all involved in the production of a feature film called The Space Between. This film is being sponsored, or at least funded, by... A religious organisation uh, called the Church of Sinyata that has been active within Hollywood for some years and has basically been fighting for legitimacy, trying to get itself taken seriously and shed its reputation as a cult. And a lot of its members are involved in some way or another with the entertainment industry. And this film is seen as being... Their big shot for legitimacy, or at least some way of getting their message out there in a fairly digestible form. Unfortunately, things are turning to shit. The leading lady of the film has disappeared, the director has gone into hiding, and you are playing a number of uh, people involved with the production or involved with the organisation of the church who are going in there to try to sort out this mess before the whole thing just crashes and burns.
And we got a new backer via Patreon. Nice. A big thanks to Tim Vert. Hey, thank you, Tim. Indeed. Thank you very much, Tim. Thanks for your donation. And that goes towards... White Russians. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it goes towards the fact that our hosting renewal is just about to come up. So that's actually going to be paid for this year. Good stuff. Yeah. Where is my White Russian? And, and of course, buying White Russians. (laughs) After after we've paid for the hosting, the domain registration, the bandwidth costs from Amazon S3, uh, the the cost of the microphone. What have we learned about messing with the mythos? That is a good thing. That the mythos is not this... (sighs) this static thing it is not just this collection of of fixed ideas it is not a canon that it is a a mutable thing that has been developed over a long time by a lot of different authors who have all taken it in very different directions and done very different things with it and that this is what you as a keeper should do you should make it to your own but that's not just the content of the game that's the style of the game as well so if you've got to get an idea for a, a particular kind of horror story that that deviates from the normal Call of Cthulhu tropes you can or, or style you can you can do that yes no, never feel like you have to do what people have done before thinking of the one of the several books that our uh, Yeti microphone stands on our three love burning mic blurring down at Douglas Adams um, move away from his uh, demanding clearly defined areas of uncertainty um, that yeah, mess, mess up, break the rules, go beyond the map, go above and beyond what people expect, and yeah, generally scare them. That wraps it up for tonight. So it's goodbye from me, cheerio from me, and farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemous tomes.